Well, I guess let's get started here. Um, I am Peter Panarchy. I am an organizer for the Oregon Mises Caucus. I am also the vice chair of the Oregon Public Policy Board. Nothing I say on this podcast should be misconstrued to say that the Oregon Libertarian Party feels this way. Um, I understand I am joined by my friend Matt. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Matt Rao. Um, I also serve on the LPO Public Policy Board. Uh, I'm just a, a regular member, but uh, it, it's an enjoyable uh, post to have, and it's one of the many opportunities in the Libertarian Party for folks who want to get involved. Uh, I, I work as a political consultant. Uh, I've served in public office on and off and in journalism uh, over the last 20 years. So, you know, it's, it's a breadth of, uh, you know, sort of journeyman political experience. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Like tonight I want to talk about a little bit about just, I think there's a white pill that's happening in the Ukraine conflict. I think that this might be drawing towards an end in a number of ways. Uh, I don't think that you'll hear this on like most uh, corporate media outlets, but it seems obvious just uh, based on different things we're hearing that this might be the case. So I will remind everybody that the common theme of the show is that as a libertarian, we should realize that nearly every actor on both sides of every conflict is a state. States are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that fight our wars. So, Tonight, I want to start with uh, a little bit on Jen Stoltenberg, uh, the general secretary of NATO, uh, vowed on April 3rd that the alliance would continue supporting the membership of Ukraine, despite Russia's dangerous and reckless nuclear rhetoric. I saw a lot of stuff on Twitter about this this week. It basically said, like, you're ensuring World War III. And there's a lot of alarmism, which I did feel kind of myself as well, but I took a step back and thought about it for a second and also kind of realized that there was more that uh, Stoltenberg said. And to quote Stoltenberg, uh, the first step towards any membership of Ukraine to NATO is to ensure the Ukraine prevails. And that is why the U.S. and its partners have provided unprecedented support for Ukraine. Since then, countries like Poland, Lithuania, and of course Ukraine have asked for a firmer roadmap Interestingly, this request has been resisted. So to quote antiwar.com, the Financial Times report, quoting the Financial Times, said that the U.S., Germany, and Hungary are pushing back against these efforts, and NATO members are expected to be locked in negotiations on the issue until the summit is held in July. Ukrainian President Zelensky has warned that he would only attend the summit if Kiev was presented with steps toward membership. So in my opinion, what this really means is this rhetoric that Ukraine will join NATO is actually quite hollow. Similar to Afghanistan, the U.S. will likely just call defeat victory. They will use NATO joining as the potential escape hatch that probably won't be realized. Sorry, Gregory, you're joining us a little bit late, but we're talking about how Stoltenberg uh, the NATO general secretary is talking about uh, Ukraine finally joining NATO while giving no actual plan to do so and talking about how victory in the current conflict is kind of a, kind of a deal breaker. Um, so yeah, I was reading up. Go ahead. Uh, Gregor, Matt, curious to see your, your thoughts on this. Well, I mean, assuming the, the pledge of determination by, 
the majority of NATO's states that Ukraine must become a member as soon as possible, which is a pipe dream, um, that guarantees that the government in Kiev will fall uh, at the hands of the Russian government and a new regime will be put in place by the Russians because the central tenet was uh, disarmament of Ukraine, denazification of Ukraine, and NATO neutrality, Ukrainian neutrality. Those are the war objectives. They haven't changed, and obviously ending the genocide, attempted genocide in, in the Donbass. Um, so Jen Stoltenberg and his great generosity has determined that they will fight until the last Ukrainian, uh, despite the fact the people of Ukraine have never been asked on the Well, and yeah, I'm with Matt on this one. This is absolute insanity, and Ukraine cannot. It would be decades before Ukraine could be qualified even to join NATO. The only way it could happen is if it got shoved through on some trumped-up method, which would be insanity. I'm not a supporter of that. I'm just saying this is the way things go, and my only concern is that this is the way that they're trying to get the war to start. Finland, I heard Finland's little speech about how important it was for Ukraine to join you know, NATO. And that's insane because guess who goes first after the Ukraine? Um, and Finland is, you know, their military is not huge. It's moderately efficient, but it's not huge. And, you know, you I don't know how many people play StarCraft, but the Zerg surge is something, and the Russians can do the surge. So it's just, it really is insanity to me to even talk about this still. It, we should be talking about how to stop the fighting, not how to keep it going. Well, and what's so insane about all of this is the the conflict escalated so quickly in the Ukraine after November of 2021 when Anthony Blinken, whose dad used to be the ambassador to the Ukraine, uh, uh, signed off on fast-tracking NATO membership. I think the goal was they thought, obviously, that the Russians were going to just totally fold like a cheap suit uh, in the face of NATO aggression and a more built-up Ukrainian military presence. But uh, they clearly uh, misjudged the situation because now what was supposed to be a give-me Ukrainian membership in NATO is now Uncle Sam's a little hesitant. And I think this is really going to be a wake-up call for any other country that thinks they can defy peace, uh, uh, the peace efforts of other countries and their own people, uh, simply to profiteer uh, at the uh, feet of the the United States empire. I think that's right. I also think that's why I see it as a fame, just because we saw how hard it was to get Finland involved in the NATO. Like we saw how hard like Turkey and Hungary resisted to this. I, I just don't see Turkey and maybe hopefully Hungary supporting this. Um, I think they would probably have a condition not unlike the U S that would say like, okay, well maybe after the war is over, we can't admit a nation that is at war with a non NATO nation to uh, NATO. Otherwise uh, it would inevitably cause And I'm not sure what the, uh, you know, the whole psychology is for having Sweden and uh, Finland both talk about joining NATO after so long. The reason they hadn't in the past was because Russia demanded they not. Um, now, Finland has experience with Russian tactics. You know, they've had 
surges across the border where people came and tried to ca cause riots and tried to change governments. They've lived through that over the last 30, 40 years. Um, you know, so that they know exactly how the system works. My guess is, though, is that they feel like they have to pick a side because Russia was going to come anyway since they went to the uh, Crimea, which I'm sorry, you know, Russia, that was not a surprise. They went to Crimea. I think part of the peace negotiations is going to include giving Crimea to to Russia. I don't care what, you know, I'm saddened. I've, you know, for the Ukraine, you're going to lose that territory or you're not going to survive at all is the way I look at it. But apparently, you know, so many people in the government don't. And I mean, our government. And, you know, this whole thing is, is again, we have the inmates running. Yeah, that's a good point. I also don't think that Ukraine ever really had Crimea, which I guess is something we were planning on getting into later. But I mean, I've seen like the NBC uh, video, I think that most of you have, that uh, Crimea doesn't want to be liberated. I mean, they're very happy being part of the Russian Federation. And I think there was polling in 2014 when the mostly bloodless coup actually happened, where the Russian military basically stepped outside their base and said, okay, this is Russia now. And uh, it seems like the people that live there, uh, based on polling that's happened recently, um, don't want to be part of Ukraine. And based on the shit show that's been happening over the last couple of years, I, I kind of understand why. But, uh, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was going to say the heavy-handed tactics uh, that was used by the Ukrainian government when it clearly had no intention of following Minsk 1 and Minsk, 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 ah, tongue-tied, Minsk 2, um, after the 2014 conflict, uh, was uh, the, the, the heavy-handed approach that essentially ceded the eastern portions, uh, the Russian portions of Ukraine to the Azov Battalion. And I understand it's been beaten to death, Azov's evil, they're neo-Nazis, so forth. Um, but the heavy-handed tactics used by, by the Azov Battalion uh violated the tenets of uh, of Minsk, Minsk 1 and 2, which was to stop the violence in the Donbass. Um, and again, you know, this warrants repeating again. What they used, what the Russians used, was the right to protect argument that, that NATO used in the, the former Yugoslavia, in Kosovo. Um, and, and so what's good for the goose is clearly not good for the gander, and what I wor wonder about here, especially with momentum on the side of the Russians, and I will, I would expect the Ukrainians are going to make a meaningful impact with their counteroffensive, but the, the weapons and, and, and the manpower issue, and frankly, the fighting spirit of the men at this point, uh, I, I don't believe they're going to be able to roll back anything of any significance, and the Russians will take it right back. And so the problem is, as we saw from a, an article earlier today, uh, you know, uh, Francois Hollande, the former socialist president of France who helped negotiate Minsk 1 and 2, uh, said exactly what Angela Merkel said, which was it was never a legitimate treaty from their perspective. It was always to buy time for future uh, military conflict, which, again, I thought that's what we hung von Ribbentrop for after World War II, uh, bad faith diplomacy. Uh, and yet uh, these are the folks who claim to be the leaders of a rules-based order of what we don't know, but uh, I don't know how the Russians will ever be able to accept a negotiated truce here. They're going to have to win militarily and have a definitive winner and loser, and then they'll probably have to negotiate from that position. Um, just 
curious, Matt, you may know more than this than I do. Um, because I get the I, I my personal impression is is that if we were it, and this is just a guess best on some of the things I've read around that if we were to if not we meaning not we but if the world were to say okay listen we'll just make Ukraine neutral and you can have the Crimea let's stop the fighting some people have floated that as an idea do you not think that would be viable. I think that offer was on the table in early March of 2022. I think it's long gone, especially with the momentum shifting considerably. I could be wrong, though. I mean, again, the what we have access to, the, the military and the intelligence agencies and the leadership in those countries, respective countries involved, have different information than us. But I would assume, especially given the bad faith negotiation by the NATO powers in, uh, in the past, and the fact that they slapped away this very generous offer at the beginning of the conflict, especially when Russia tried, tried for eight years to to maintain a peace and follow the Minsk One and Two agreements, I, I don't think there's any way with the current government in place that they could accept those. Terms. Yeah, I was going to ask. Uh, we didn't actually talk about this in our past episode on um, the history of the conflict. Could you go in a little bit? I guess it's sorry off the cuff, but to what like Minsk and one and two were actually about, Matt? So after the the conflict from the Maidan coup, where uh, certain provinces uh, sorry, uh, could you say like the the Maidan coup happened in 2014? Oh yeah, the Maidan. Forgive me. The tw- after the 2014 Maidan coup, um, in which again you can look at the maps on this election. It's uh, they're divided east west almost right down the line, and their landslide margins for each opposing party in the west in the west, um, the pro NATO EU side party gets uh, seventy and eighty percent margins, and in the east, the the pro eastern perspective was getting eighty and seventy percent, and then when they were allowed to have an internationally supervised vote on it uh, on secession and, and annexation with Russia after the twenty fourteen conflict. Uh, they voted by similar margins to join Russia. And even though the UN said it was a legitimate vote, uh, the Western powers have still claimed it's inherently illegitimate, despite all the reporters, despite all the folks who have been there talking to folks, former Ukrainian citizens uh, who are of Russian stock and were born under the Soviet Union or the early stage Russian Federation, who see themselves as Russians. But after that 2014 conflict, to cool it down, the... Minsk one was essentially an immediate peace, uh, a ceasefire, putting everything, freezing everything in place. The Russians would have Crimea, and the killing would stop in the Donbass. That's a very made. That's a very gross simplification of it, but really, all the technical aspects and the organization for security and cooperation in Europe would be a neutral, quote unquote, neutral arbiter for all of this. But as we know, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe was stocked with these same supposedly neutrals uh, who were belligerents like the Germans and, and the French uh, and the United States and the British. And so there was no real honest way uh, to, to, to monitor the agreements. And it fell apart. And then conflict started again. And then there was the second Minsk agreement, which after, after the pro-independence forces in the East won some significant battles, after the collapse of Minsk one and the Russians were providing them with military assistance, uh, Ukraine uh, signed Minsk, Minsk two, which was, as we know now, definitively a bad faith agreement. 
So again, the agreements were, there, there are multiple bullet points to all of them, but the main goal was freeze the status quo in place and cease fire and stop the killing in the Donbass. Well, they promised it twice, and if they promised it again, I think the Russians would be very foolish to accept. Yeah, I would agree there. Um, I think the idea was to have an independent Donbass, eastern Ukraine, that wasn't part of either federation, either alliance. That ship seems to have sailed. There was an attempt in March of uh, 2021, uh, peace talks held by uh, President Erdogan of Turkey. They hope to reignite these efforts and understand that Zelensky and Putin, everybody was really on board, but this was kind of sidelined by the arrival of Boris Johnson uh, from the UK. And he pressed them not to negotiate, told them that the, the US and NATO has your back and you can get Crimea back. And that's not what happened. And I think what I'm trying to get at in this episode is the inevitable end to this conflict that we would have predicted for the beginning, like less thousands of people dying, sorry, hundreds of thousands of people dying. Uh, it seems to the end will kind of be drawn on those same lines that hopefully uh, Ukraine will retain like some semblance over the, the Western part and like the Eastern regions that still want to be part of Ukraine. But it is really weird that there's all this talk of democracy, but it's just completely ignoring like the way that people actually feel like on on the ground. So curious to have any more thoughts from you, Gregor, on that before I move to the next topic. Well, my only uh, thing that, you know, I'm, I'm with you that this has been a useless fight from the start. And I think at best we're going to have a, this is where we started routine after some 120,000 deaths, um, which is, you know, a crime in itself. Um, and the players are what drive me insane is because had we never supported Ukraine, I'm sure this conflict would have been over already. Had we not, you know, had as Johnson had not, Boris Johnson had not nixed the original piece, we could have had something. And yeah, I'm sorry, Ukraine, you, should, you know, I, you're going to have to get over it. There was no way that Russia was ever leaving the Crimea. Um, and, you know, as pointed out, there was elections and that seemed to have been fair. What are you going to do? And it, but it boils down to NATO trying or uh, the UN and NATO trying to be the world government, which is not supposed to be. And yet here we are. And if you don't, if you're not honest in your negotiations, Look what happens, because this, again, just like when we first started this series way back about World War One, it's all about what everybody tells each other and doesn't believe or doesn't do more accurately. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's really hard to feel honest in negotiations when we look at things like Libya, for instance, like uh, Muammar Gaddafi gave up all of his weapons, gave up all of his hands and. He was raped and murdered in the streets of uh, Benghazi. So um, you can't really trust the Americans anymore. And it makes it difficult to understand like how people can make a peace unless they have like security guarantees. And those seem important right now. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as uh, Hillary Clinton said, they got him. They got the guy they were after, Gaddafi, and she was happy about it. 
it, it's it's it makes me ill as an American to see our country act this way. I've hate I've hated so many things over the last twenty twenty five years that we have done um, in the name of insert security question here, keeping this person safe, keeping us safe. We've done so many things so badly, and and through and you know the last fifty years or more of conflicts have all ended badly because of the incompetence of the organization, uh, the State Department. Almost makes you feel like it's the end of the American empire, which you talked about uh, last week. But So in related news, uh, Zelensky commented that defeat in Bakhmut, which seems inevitable at this point, will mean the Ukrainians will have to compromise, which I think might have been more of an off-the-cuff comment, but which is kind of extraordinary, like from coming from the Ukrainian government, since they've been like basically saying, yeah, we're going to take back all of our territory and Crimea. And there was actually like some recompense from that. So we had Tamilia Tasheva, who is the envoy to Crimea, saying that we are uh, plan to take Crimea is like still the plan. So uh, I guess there's maybe some division happening in the Ukrainian government over peace. But I mean, we hope this conflict actually can come to a point as soon as possible. So I guess we already talked about uh, Merkel and. Uh, Minsk. So I guess we're going to move on. I guess unless you have any comments on like how like the war on the ground is going, I'd, I've been trying to follow like Scott Horton and like a Dave DeCamp and uh, Douglas McGregor has been great on this, just talking about how like we're just outfitting these Ukrainian soldiers with like equipment they've never used before, like hoping that they're going to be able to like fight like in these uh, eastern regions. And I know there's there's talk of a Ukrainian counterattack to counter like the, the Russian uh, incursion. But I'm curious to hear, hear if you have any thoughts on like what this mounting Ukrainian counterattack means and if they're going to be able to like push the border in any way. Well, the reasonable thing tactically, just looking at the history of warfare, especially in Europe, these final pushes usually don't work at getting you a better spot on the negotiating table. You can ask the Third Reich how that turns out. Um, the fact, that, and, and let's be frank here, the Russians look at them like the Third Reich at this point. I mean, there's a there's a lot of bad blood here, and and uh, I think I think fundamentally, uh, when uh, you, you tell you say you're not going to negotiate, and you were offered a very generous peace deal, there's clearly division in the ranks. Because I think part of the reason why Zelensky didn't accept the peace deal wasn't just because, you know, he ever thought he was going to get Crimea back. I think that's propaganda for his own people to keep him going to the meat grinder or, or a delusion uh, to keep money and guns flowing in from the West. Um, I think there was a clear message sent to him. Either you're going to be our leader in this conflict against Russia or you're going to die and somebody else is. Um, I also think that there's a lot of uh, deals with the devil here. I mean, uh, rumors of the deal to give the Poles back uh, Galicia uh, in, in western Ukraine, which has rotated back and forth between the Poles and the Ukrainians for centuries. Um, and the Polish government saying on their own state TV that the reason they're supporting the effort in the Ukraine is to depopulate the West of men and then move the Polish in and slowly start on a, on a long-term annexation plan. So it's a very, very odd situation here. But the fact of the matter is, uh, if they were smart strategically, 
they would take what resources they have and fall back far into their line and, and make a bulwark to defend their government uh, in, in Kiev because they're going to be wiped out. They're using very hostily uh, uh, conscripted soldiers. They're abducting teenagers off the street. There are videos of it all over the place. Um, and their soldiers are untrained, inexperienced, and going up against a much better army, uh, even if a large segment of that army are mercenaries because the Wagner Group has some of the toughest and nastiest guys in the world fighting for them. And they've largely won the victory in, in, in Bakhmut. Uh, so it, it's a real, real bad place to be in for Kiev, but uh, they're going to make the push, it looks like, for that final offensive, and uh, I don't think it's going to improve the negotiating table one bit. As a matter of fact, it'll probably uh, speed up the, the, the looming collapse of the, the Kiev. Battle of the bulge all over again. Um... And it's, you know, it is all about logistics. War is about logistics. And that is the weakness there is that, you know, without constant supply from us, uh, they have no logistics at all. And in country, the logistics are spotty at best. And you're just, so you can't support long-term those pushes. Sure, you can run in an attack and then pull back. But again, that's not a negotiating position. That's just a... You know, that's just a slap in the face to get to piss people off, which, of course, weakens you anyway, because you're going to spend, you know, blood and treasure to get. Yeah, it does seem that way. Uh, curious to see, like, how any further incursions in the what used to be Ukrainian territory is going to help. And I guess I just want to reiterate that, I mean, as libertarians, like we think everyone deserves like sovereignty. And really, I feel most for the people that are living in eastern Ukraine. Like, uh, I know I have a massage therapist that's from eastern Ukraine. And uh, she kind of told me that her family feels that they don't really have a dog in the fight between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And they wish that the war just wasn't happening. And I think that is kind of the focus we should have. Just people that don't want to be involved. Uh, never wanted to be there, but kind of found themselves caught between two evil parties. And as I said from the start, I said every episode, uh, that really is how most of these wars play out. Just two evil parties that are kind of destroying each other and using the innocent people like as their cannon fodder. Um, I guess there's one more topic I wanted to cover uh, while we're here. Um, in general, it seems like the goading of Russia into Ukraine has completely backfired. For the U.S., uh, it hasn't had the desired economic impacts that were hoped, which was to crush the Ru Russian economy, crush the ruble. We've kind of seen the opposite. We've seen the ruble has soared. We've seen all these new agreements between like Russia and China and Syria and Iran and Brazil. And it's kind of resulted in the kind of like leaving the unipolar order, I guess you'd say. So... Curious to hear your thoughts on that. And just, I mean, despite the terrible human costs, like we haven't really learned anything from the victory of, I guess you'd say, I guess there hasn't really been a victory and there's been the, the realignment. So curious to hear your thoughts on just like how in general, like this has gone for the U.S. unipolar order, order and like kind of what this means for the future of U.S. relations.
Okay, I'll jump in. Um, I'm sorry, Matt, uh, only be a second. BRICS, uh, the Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa, and now Syria, and probably Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, they're all talking about a new form of currency with China, of course, based on theoretically based on gold and land. Um, and it's, you know, who's going to refuse a currency based on gold and land? Now, my question is, if China is in charge of it, how secure is that? Um, there is there is the big question, but I can see where people would be tempted. The U.S. has lost its economic edge. Um, you know, we don't make anything anymore, period. And I think that's the biggest problem. And if we want and I don't I don't want us to be on top. I just want us to be productive and safe. And I think if we were to do that, we would have allies because people would want to trade with us. And it's really that simple. If we were to boost our economy, we could probably in the long run save the world by letting each country trade with us openly and freely and everybody gets better. But the world order, the world economic forum, then uh, the UN doesn't seem to want that to happen. At least that's my opinion in that. One of the bigger signs of detachment from reality that all belligerent regimes face near the end uh, was Jen Stoltenberg uh, warning China to stay out of the Ukrainian conflict and not exploit uh, the crisis there. And what's fascinating about it is the emperor literally is wearing no clothes now. This is a, a bit of a... Uh, a trope, I guess, to say at this point, but it, I, I, you can't think of a better analogy. Literally, they're looking into the mirror uh, and and see something completely different than the reflection that's come back. And the belligerence of our foreign policy is making commitments that there's no way we would ever be able to honor in a in a combat scenario. There's no way this country has the manpower right now, or the psychological or physical health in its population, uh, to fight a, a unified war effort against the People's Republic of China. And I would also say, though, this delusion is also matched by major tactical mistakes in our goal of maintaining global economic and military hegemony. When I say our, I mean the government that, that operates in our name. And, and, and uh, uh, I was going to say, though, since the Iranian hostage crisis, we started invoking uh, really the economic equivalent of nuclear war. And first it was against Iran, then it was against Iraq, then it was against Yugoslavia, and then Serbia afterwards as Yugoslavia uh, started to fall apart. Um, and we've done it, uh, we did it against Afghanistan in the 90s and after 2001. Uh, and, and, and we've just done it again and again and again, and we did it to Russia after 2014, and we extended it in 2022. All these countries eventually start to worry hey, I could be next. If I have a conflict with a neighbor on my border that's on the other side of the world from America, they may try and destroy my currency. And a lot of these countries don't have the natural resources that Russia has. That essentially means the world market will balance it out. Uh, and so these people are scared. And so what we have done is we've shown our weakness in Afghanistan, Iraq, and now in Ukraine, and at the same time, we're making delusional commitments against uh, the People's Republic of China. And, and uh, we're losing the confidence of our people at home. 
and the people abroad. And I think the world uh, is waking up to that reality more and more every day. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? It makes you wonder, like, who is actually slotted to stand in front of the UN Security Council and say, we reject China's ceasefire proposal because they're not a neutral party. Also, we reject independent investigation into the Nord Stream pipeline attack because they're not neutral. Um, it's just, it's crazy. Like, how can this person stand up there with a straight face and say that uh, this is the way things should be? Do you think people would just be laughing in their face, but I don't know. I guess this is the world we live in, uh, the death of the unipolar old order, I guess you'd say. Well, she, the death of the unipolar order is definitely on its last legs, but we still literally pay for the United Nations to exist. Um, you know, it's, we pay like three quarters of their, of, of everything there. Um, you know, so of course the people that live here that come over from other countries where we give them apartments and give them salaries and things like that all want to vote our way to keep their salaries. It's quite the disgusting um, arrangement, if you ask me. But, uh, you know, the UN is literally even more so now becoming a stamp for the U.S., even though China dumps a lot of money into it, too. But, uh, you know, it's just becoming a stamp for the U.S., and, and which we don't need. We need, we, need to have, we need to have character again. And we lost that years ago. Um, and, you know, it's, it's until we get it back, until we have a society as well as a president with character. And I don't see that. I don't see any of those on the horizon. Um, you know, we're going to be stuck. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why you have to focus on like local issues and caring about local candidates. But in general, it seems like what we really should focus on is like the three pinnacles of uh, honor, love, and freedom as like the virtues of a voluntary-based order that we're going to focus on in the future. I mean, I think all this really goes to my positing at the beginning that the U.S. is really just trying to save face while we draw down this conflict. I think that like this is ending, and I think it's it's bad for the U.S. dollar as well as everything else going on. And I guess the biggest thing I worry about is that they're going to try to save face with the petrodollar and replacing it with a central bank digital currency or a CBDC. So um, – I think that's probably the most important thing we have to fight against, knowing that like the economy is going to collapse and they're going to basically just say, hey, if you want to buy food for your family, uh, you don't have money anymore. But don't worry, uh, you now have FedCoin. So you can just log in to this using your social security number, and now you have money again. So um, one of the biggest things that I want to focus on over the next year is building a network of people local in Oregon to build a mutual aid society that really revolves around um, blockchain and trust and forms of uh, both precious metals and cryptocurrency to start trying to avoid uh, the inevitable future that we're going to see, which is, I think, the breakdown of the U.S. dollar. Be careful. You may start talking about free markets or something like that. Yeah, I mean, this is just the concept I've come up with in the last couple of days, which I'm talking to Travis about, uh, who's really into uh, 
crypto right now. I know he was, he was at the Bitcoin conference in Miami, and I think he went to another conference in New York. But I think we really have to think about the future and like how we're going to deal with situations where like uh, we have a family member, for instance, that uh, has a catastrophic incidence and we can't rely on the government in order to uh, deal with this. And how do we actually deal with that? I think it is a mutual aid society that we have to pool our resources like as a local community and make sure that we're there for each other, like when it's needed most. Well, and absolutely. And that, and that is what community is. Um, you know, that's what it's supposed to be. The problem is, is that we have left that behind to, you know, for everybody to live on the internet and not know your next door neighbors and not understand the people who you're living with. Um, you know, everybody, wants to be online and do something and not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but at the exclusion of getting involved with your, with your local neighbors. And when they, when you try to get involved, the sad part is, is they all look at you cross-eyed because I've tried to meet neighbors several times and they say, who are you? I lived in one Oh four, you know, I lived down in one Oh three. I just wanted to say hi and say, I don't no, go away. I mean, literally it's that kind of reception, but I think in a crisis that will change all of a sudden, everybody's going to have to, and I'm all over what you're saying about having a local, um, you know, some sort of a local economy, a local parallel economy. The black market will rise if the, bit, if the uh, Fed coin comes into being. There will be a black market. There will be a, a uh, capitalist underground. And there's no reason you can't start it now and make it established. And therefore, when the Fed coin fails or whatever, then our local economy, because Oregon is an amazing place. We really have so much. We have so many natural resources. We have so many, um, you know, so much food we can produce and all these things. We, you know, that puts us off better than, say, the Southwest, where they have to import so much, even the water. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop. Just the idea that like we need to focus on community. We need to focus on um, our local like uh, chapters of not just the Libertarian Party, but our neighbors in general. Uh, go knock on your neighbor's door. I know it sucks. I'm bad about it myself. Like uh, moved into this house <laughs> over a year ago, and I don't know most of my neighbors by name. I probably should, but I think it's something that we have to focus on going forward. Um, I think we'll probably begin closing the podcast. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, uh, Gregor, Matt, on anything we talked about today? Oh, I tell all my friends, if you don't know how to hunt and fish, learn to hunt and fish because it's not going to be a recreation uh, in the near future. It's going to be a necessity. Well said. Hey, we have Nutria here in Oregon now, a great food source. They're supposed to be pretty tasty. Um, and just for anybody that's listening later, uh, tomorrow at noon's the, uh, tomorrow's the, what, the 8th at noon, um, I'm going to be in the, on the unsanctioned citizen podcast at noon Pacific time. And we'll be talking about a lot of news this week. It's been a hairy week for news and just local news and, and, you know, American news and, uh, Oregon news. So we'll be talking. Yeah, and Gregory, you weren't here for the beginning, so if you want to go ahead and just plug your podcast in general and any plugs you have, go ahead. 
Now, the other one I have on Tuesdays at one o'clock, and this week I'm going to be interviewing Christopher Key, who is a refugee. Well, not a refugee, but he's uh, he was arrested for not masking in, in, I believe it was Tennessee, and we're going to be talking a bit about him, and he's very big on, you know, eating your way healthy. Um, we're going to be talking about that kind of stuff, keeping healthy through, you know, like logical means, not the medical community. So that's going to be one o'clock Tuesday. Um, and you can catch the Liberty Mindset on Spotify and Google and Apple. Uh, we just finished the Ludwig von Mises's book, Planned Chaos. And uh, I may be starting another one of his books. I'm thinking that may just be my education goal for now is to read people's books that are open source that are important and learning how to about economics. That's going to be an interesting episode about like being arrested for being masked. I know that like I showed up to a bunch of places in 2020, 2021 unmasked and a day slew to say like force me to put a mask on. If you tell me I'll do it. If not, I'm not going to, but I know uh, I was part of a couple protests with the free Oregon where we showed up at large uh, malls. I know we did one in the Clackamas town center mall and another one, I'm trying to remember which mall exactly, but basically just walk through with a block of people and there were still mass mandates and just refused to refuse to mask. So um, that's going to be an interesting one. So glad you're doing that and apologize. Uh, I would love to be on your podcast again, Gregor, just the times haven't worked out. So I, I do a regular nine to five, but feel free to comment and, and, you know, listen to them later and comment that helps the algorithms. Thank you guys. Yeah, no worries. Happy to have you here. Um, regular guest here. So appreciate the contribution. Matt, do you have any last thoughts before we close out the episode? Just that it's an exciting time to be alive. And again, I think some folks hear the way I talk and think uh, I'm talking our country down. I, I am not talking our country down. I'm talking uh, the regime that controls the government out of Washington, D.C. down. I think the end of the empire is going to be very good for the American people. I think it's going to create law. It'll be painful short term, but I think long term we're going to come out of it much, much better than we have with this uh, belligerent, warmongering uh, kleptocracy that's been in place for so many decades in the United States. And I'm excited to see the change come. But also as a plug, if anybody's looking for uh, any uh, good political consulting, uh, <laughs> They can find me uh, uh, at my company, Bridging the Divide Consulting. Uh, uh, we provide uh, campaign management and public policy services in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and you can reach me uh, through Facebook or Twitter or a myriad of other places. Just Google my name, Matt Rao, and uh, it'll pop up. And thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. And, yeah, it reminds me of what uh, Daniel McAdams, the former uh, chief of staff for Ron Paul, said uh, just never carry water for the regime. Like if someone asks you in 2002, like is Saddam Hussein a bad person? The answer is yes. But does that mean you should trash them on social media because the U.S. is going to attack them? Probably not. So just keep in mind uh, what's best for the American people. So thanks, everybody. Uh, it's, it's been great. So thank you for joining us. And uh, cheers. And everybody have a great weekend. And stay safe. And Stay strapped.